So you made it. It's nice to know that that's a little notch on your gun. <laughs> but what have we made? Tonight, uh, I'd like to talk about the three awakenings. The three awakenings, and uh, it's a very unrehearsed and first time. Uh, talk, so it may end rather shortly, <laughs> in which case we'll fill the rest in with Q&A if you'd like. <laughs> so uh, um, this uh, question of awakening, you see, what is it that awakens? What is it that awakens? <clears throat> Have you ever... Uh, forgotten something it was right on your thing and then you forget and then you try very hard to remember try very hard to remember but the harder you try uh, the less the possibility for you to remember is there so you just say something something happens and you just say and you just go on uh, and you just can't remember it so there's a kind of uh, suspension of the effort and a relaxation and, and then a not knowing uh, what you were going to say, and then it comes. You see? Uh, and uh, what brought it was the relaxation. It comes from nowhere. It comes out, where did it come from? And it, it wasn't in your control. You relaxed, and then the memory of it shone through, the, right? That's very much like. Awakening. It doesn't come through your efforts. It comes through relaxation. And it comes through the interface of not knowing. And it comes on its own, in its own time. At its own, in its own way. And all we can do is to create the conditions for it to come. So what are those conditions? The conditions are relaxation. <laughs> and not knowing. So the first awakening is the awakening of the mind. The three awakenings is awakening of the mind, awakening of the heart, and awakening of the gut. <laughs> what? Did I make a mistake? No, I... What? Did I make it up? Yeah, I'm making it up. <laughs> So the Buddha said, <laughs> that doesn't make it wrong. <laughs> okay. So uh, the awakening of the mind. <clears throat> what is this awakening of the mind? Um, I mean, we're so um, enamored by it. It's so, it. It leads us throughout our life, doesn't it? It, it provides a sense of forethought. It uh, clearly um, allows us an extension of, of our memory and therefore the safety of the present because I've been in this situation before. I've done a seven-day retreat. I know I can do it. 
uh, provides a sense of context. It provides a sense of safety. It provides a sense of, um, of security. For, and, and, and we uh, have nourished it, nourished that relationship with it, and it has um, proved itself uh, within a certain context, a certain parameter, to be very helpful. It's got me my jobs, my credentials, whatever. Um, but there is a growing uh, inward um, agitation, let us say, that we're missing something uh, confined only within what a thought tells us is true. Now, we don't know that because we only know that we're confined with what the thought is telling us. And that seems okay, except for some reason, it's not in alignment necessarily with the conditions of life. Uh, it's, it seems to take off on its own, go where it wants to, f take off in flight. And I often uh, use the example where uh, it's something like a, on a high dive, uh, the person walks up to the high diving board and jumps, and then there is contact, right? And then the contact is uh, either pleasant or unpleasant, as uh, Narayan had been spoken about, so there's a feeling tone. And then based upon that, we flip away from the board, because no longer are we touching reality at that point. As we're taking flight in the message, in the memory of what this pleasant feeling could give me and where life could go from here and what it could possibly be. And so we jump very high into the air of our thinking uh, very in a very abstract distance from that contact, original contact place and that a feeling that associated itself with it. And then we do a beautiful dive or an ugly one. And guess what? The pool's empty. <laughs> Because inevitably, that dive into thought has to crash into the reality of the situation. Inevitably. And uh, for a long period of time, that inevitability is, um, is circumstantial. It's because I hadn't found the right partner and the right job wasn't, this isn't the right job for me. And it's our, sort of our, um, our uh, uh, irritation and annoyance are all, completely accountable because reality isn't proving itself to be reliable in my context. And then a sobering uh, idea and understanding comes is that uh, it may be the fact that we have uh, taken leave of reality and that that may be the problem. And so awakening to thought is awakening uh, to the veil, uh, the dreamlike veil that thought gives us at the expense of the reality that's always in front of our eyes. Uh, and we can uh, see it uh, from the moment, uh, the, the, the uh, subtlety of the moment of irritation or the uh, ending of the, um, our life uh, in terms of death. So awakening to the mind is awakening to the nature of thought itself. The veil that is created, the, the dreamlike veil that is created uh, when in the abstract world, in the entirely imaginative world of our dreams, that there is a beauty in them because they can go anywhere. 
they can go to uh, our first uh, sexual encounter or last year's vacation or they can go to anywhere. The problem is once we are on that diving board in the air, we no longer have control of where they go or what's going to happen in the course of that dive. And unfortunately, if they take you to heaven, they will at some point take you to hell as well. It's a very linear relationship with life. That's why it's always about the past, through the past, into the future. It's a linear relationship to life. And so we begin to awaken now to that limitation. Now, what is the best environment? What's the best? What is a, um, a, a very um, useful environment to explore that is retreat setting. There's no question. Because retreat setting allows the journey inside and the uh, the lack of distractions, which usually create more thought. So in a very um, uh, active life, a very complex world where we're doing many, many things, it's hard to get a sense of how what thought is in all of that or even develop any kind of steadiness so that we can get a sense of its limitation. We just think that's the way life is. But it's useful to come on to retreat. And again, the duration of that retreat is not the determining quality because I have seen people awaken from the mind um, in uh, short duration after uh, with no retreats or working with just a few, in a few. So don't think, well, I've got many, many more retreats to work. For some people, like myself and Narayan, we went on many, many retreats for long periods of time, partially because we were pulled to do so. It was just seemed to be uh, within our character. So it, it's, it's really individual. But I do think retreat... Um, Retreating can be, not ultimately has to be, but can be very helpful in getting this sense of an exploration of the limitation of thought. And in that deepening, enriching environment and in the quietude, we begin to actually be able to settle ourselves enough so that we can hear ourselves thinking, which is a tremendously altering experience. It reshapes my... And for some of you, um, that may not have occurred yet, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with your practice if it hasn't. But when you start hearing the whispers of your own thinking, suddenly uh, uh, it's a new new age dawns in that moment because who's thinking? And it really takes us dramatically into the first sense of what anatta experientially is, I think. Who's the, what is, and it can be confusing at that time. It can even be somewhat uh, uh, frightful to hear, to hear yourself thinking. In fact, it can get so wild, just as a story. Uh, I was in Burma. I do not speak Burmese did not want to speak Burmese, and I was uh, doing the Burmese practice uh, as a monk. 
and I went into a, a quietude, a quiet sitting, and uh, there was a perfect conversation of Burmese going on in me. Sounded good to me. Uh, and I have no idea what it was saying. Now, that's, isn't that strange? That's very strange. So... <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want—it's not to get spooky, but it's just—but <laughs> it's very weird. It's, Why do you do this to me? <laughs> so. <laughs> So very strange things begin to happen when you're when you're in that kind of. So as as the uh, and this is one way to to gain insight into this, and there are others as well. Just a dedication to um, knowing. I think the essential link in any of these awakenings is enough's enough. You know, enough's enough. I, I this is. Uh, it, it comes almost uh, where, where uh, I will do anything uh, to understand this, where the problem has been seen to such a depth of, of um, pain that uh, you're just at a loss. You don't know what to do. And then, often, uh, there can be an awakening into this. An awakening is essentially... Um, uh, stepping, having the identity step out of thinking doesn't mean that we don't think that there isn't thought that's occurring any longer. It's just not confiscated by the content. You're not, we're not held within the, uh, the uh, dimensions, the linear dimensions of it anymore. What happens is that you, there's a tremendous sense of space out. It's more than three-dimensional. People think, well, you think, well, if I step out of thought, all I know about it is I get the uh, sight, sound, smells, taste. If that doesn't sound so exciting to me, you know, just you're, you're hearing, smelling, taste. No. <laughs> that ain't it. You step into a, a field, you st- I can, and there's no words to it, but there, it's... And that's the awakening of the mind. But we have two more awakenings. <laughs> then there is the awakening of the heart. Now, the awakening of the heart does not necessarily follow in accordance with the awakening of the mind. Although, certainly the awakening of the mind helps in the awakening of the heart, and it helps in the awakening. These are not irrespective of one another. But I think that they... Um, and they're certainly related, but we can have partial awakening. A partial awakening is an awakening of the mind, but the heart stays very um, uh, suppressed in some way. And what I mean by that is that we can have long patterns that are in us that are so um, repressed or suppressed, uh, so hideous uh, to our uh, so strongly believed in is another way of saying it. I won't say it in a negative. So strongly believed in uh, that 
It doesn't wake up with the awakening of the mind. A sense of, um, and, and you can feel it in the person's awakening, that the awakening of the heart is not complete. That there's some uh, psych, psychic immaturity. That there is not a full rounding of the, of, the, of the heart's message, of the emotional tones in the person. So that the emotions are all accommodated and seen for what they are. And there is no abiding self-belief and uh, psychological holding within any of those emotional overlays. This is the awakening of the heart, you see. Where there is no place of insecurity any longer. And one can be very fooling because if you have a tremendous awakening of the mind and you're very afraid of the message of the heart, the heart can, we can still cave ourselves and pretend. It's very convincing to walk into this field of multiple space uh, in stillness. Uh, but um, uh, in, in which uh, you can convince yourself that nothing else needs to be done. Now listen to this carefully. Where is the best environment for the awakening of the heart? Often, it is not the retreat. It is life. Full on. Complete in its full dimensionality. Because the dynamics of life are the exact ingredients that bring about the maturity and ripening of our emotional life. And it can be. It is not necessarily so. So do not take anything I'm saying into it the extreme. That you can harbor a immature emotional response to life within your retreating, never being touched by your meditation and have an awakening of the mind. This requires full-out honesty to go where our pain still rises. And if you have been coming to sense, you know that our dialoguing together in our Dharma dialogues and in all the ways we discuss, I always, almost... Each time, say, direct that person back to their emotional pain. Because therein, life holds the greatest resource for that full awakening. Now, it also occurs, you know, it's not separate from any activity of life. So, retreat also gets at it. But because the mind is so tricky, there can be very subtle ways that we suppress or repress where we don't want to go. And suddenly we find ourselves hanging out in our samadhi realms for years. Just because we're used to going there and because it's you know, compatible with our understanding of what the teacher is saying and I'm strengthening my steady attention and our emotional lives are in disarray. And when somebody comes in to an interview, I, want, I can feel how 
joyful they are within their emotions or how um, awful or what the psychological baggage is around the emotion and how constricted they are in, in feeling comfortable within that. And the sadness is that they know that as well. And what's even sadder is that they've known it for several years and have not acted on it. Have not pushed themselves. For you can hold that knowledge and not act on it. You have to move this thing in body, speech, and mind. And in body, speech, and mind, when you, when you take the risk, which means risking, when you take the risks that we all know we should take, but we can avoid. You know you can avoid intimacy forever. Or you can avoid not looking at something forever. And that will stay a forever immature range in us emotionally. It's not going to mature until we look. Don't think it will just take care of itself. We have to exercise that, bring it out, risk it. The fear encasement over that particular emotional assumption, often around inadequacy, often. And there is a, um, a, often in us, there is a key emotional issue which has led to the sprouting of most of our activity, of being nice. You can trace it all back. Perfectionism, not wanting to make a mistake. And you hear the same message year after year after year. When are, you gonna, when are we going to move out of this? You can be telling me this now, and if I'm alive in 20 years, you might well be telling me the same thing. But life is bringing it out. If you are actively sincere, this is where sincerity, the rubber meets the road in sincerity because we can use our meditation for emotional hiding and um, resistance as we can. With It will work equally as oppositely in um, insincerity as it will in sincerity. And from the outside, you look like a great yogi either way. Let me look at this thing. Let me look. Get hungry. Let us all be hungry together. And, 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 and then because much of that emotional residue was engendered through interaction with other people. It's through that interaction with life's forces that inevitably come through the activity of our life that that emotional residue comes out. Fair enough. And if we are willing to go in there and to look through the interactions with people and what we're avoiding in life and to see it, we can see patterns forming that we may never see on retreat avoidance patterns or slippages at the same place in our relationships or something which begins to tell us, hey, there's some way there that I'm not mature. There's something that needs to be seen for well-roundedness. 
so that emotions are seen for what they are rather than for the hidden reference of what we think they must contain. Because contained in those emotions, what makes them feel so burdened is our belief about that. I am this way. And if we are willing to feel the emotion and then the, ask the question from that, who would I be without this story? We can see why we continue to feed that emotional, um, the, the resistance to that emotion because we are not, we would, the, our sense of identity is at, fate, is at stake in keeping it well hidden. Because if I ask that question and I don't have another answer, at least if I keep it well ensconced in my resistance, I have an answer to the image, imaginary image question of who I am. So now that begins to take us to the third awakening, the awakening of the gut. And this is an existential crisis. This is an existential awakening. This is the awakening out of our existence as we have known it to be. And the great inhibitor of that, the trump card, is fear, terror. And all of its different disguises. In fact, every form of fear is a fear of, of self-protection. But the glue of our cellular existence is held together by fear. And at some point, the crisis, the spiritual crisis will come to that point. Now this then is the awakening of the gut. Because the gut clamps down. The gut is like a, a, a reflex that gets you back into your body through the fear access. Who am I if I gave up? So I'll work the question out. You see, I'll work out that emotional question. I'll work it out. I won't ask who it is that's emoting. I'll work out the emotion that the who has, who that the who contains. Then the who is safe. And I can spend lots of time in the linear field of thought working out my emotional entrapment but never touch the question of who. But the real sincere question is who? And then the, the gut comes in. The gut clenches down. So then we need to know about fear. We just go where, okay? See, now, once we have, if this sounds impossible to you, 
what do I do? Do I, I'll never get, geez, now we're, we're just singing the song of our own disaster. Thoughts picked it up. See, you can do that. You can go that way if you like. Oh, he's so, I can't ever, I don't know what he's talking, I don't. <laughs> but I'm asking you to stand up in this talk. Stand up with me. Rise up. Our beauty is at stake. So what is fear? This question of fear. It seems... uh, I um, was sitting alone in isolation uh, for a long retreat in Asia. And um, I, I had a uh, experience of uh, gut wrench. And I thought, well, I'll ne- I can never get over that. I mean, there's no way. It seemed insurmountable to me that anyone could ever enliven beyond the, its, one's own terror. And so, really, it, it was a discouraging moment. But it wasn't, I thought, okay, well, that's why they talk about lifetimes, because it must take lifetimes to get beyond that. And so, then you start thinking, you see, then you give yourself over to the message of time. And the fear relaxes, of course, because it loves that message. Yes, you know, 100,000 lifetimes, and okay, you <laughs> Now I can relax a little bit with this thing. You see? But if you give the question of timelessness to fear, that's when the axis, when we have crossed the boundary. Okay, you want it? So now, you see, what what do we do now? What do we do now? Now, as we begin to approach fear, I want you to hear that the essential quality to any of these awakenings is the same thing. We are now practicing wise environment. Creating the environment for that awakening to come, for the memory, the old memory to, oh, oh sure, oh yes, I remember now, I remember. And that's what we've been doing on this retreat. It's not that you need another set of instructions at some point. Relaxing, observing, and allowing is all the instructions you need for all of this. And may I say the willingness to risk. And not hide. Just, just I'm not going to hide anymore. It, I mean, there is an attitude. I mean, there, you can't dismiss the Buddha's eightfold path. There is an attitude that is necessary for these things to work cooperatively for these awakenings to occur. And each one, you see, you can, we can crank up, we can get very, uh, we can get halfway out of the mind or heart or something and, and all of a sudden you're seeing things that other people aren't seeing so you can become a professional in half mind awakening. (laughs) 
or emotional maturity, whatever that means, or something. And you can cop out, you can cash in your chips at any place. Because the status that you will receive as your understanding increases, you can really uh, go a long way. And lots of these things like est and some of these things are, that are partial understandings, the old est in the 70s, I don't know, there's a new one, the forum or something, I don't know. They're, they're, but they, they present partial, partial awakening understanding, partial Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. You can certainly work for a long time partially. But at some point, if you're partial, there's going to still be pain. So what do we do with the trump card? I love the trump card. Because it is the insurmountable wall. First, we have to understand fear. So let me just, very quickly, I'm, I'm, I've done other fear talks. I did six of them last year for those of you who were. Fear is essentially the mind working in the abstract. It says, if I stay the course, I anticipate that this will happen. And it builds an imaginative reality of the collision that it anticipates happening if I stay the course. That's fear. It is not happening now. Fear is never the actual moment. It's the anticipation of how this moment will evolve if I stay the course. But remember now, we've awakened to the mind and thought. And suddenly, it we see it. What do I have to do here? Well, what do you have to do about an imaginative problem? You do nothing about an imaginative problem. But you don't but but fear rallies the troops, doesn't it? It shouts the alarm, it rings the bell, it says, you know, our adrenaline glands, everything is but we do nothing. Because it's a, it is not true. And when we bring that forth, now it doesn't mean, I just uh, was in Ohio and I was doing a retreat and they had me in a kind of a very enclosed room and there was two little windows that were way up high and I, I was on a spring mattress. It was like a, uh, a camp, <laughs> like a child's camp. And I'm 58. <laughs> but anyway, that's not the point. The, and, and I was, uh, and it was hot. It was muggy, very hot. It was in the 90s, I would say. And it was very um, humid. And I was laying on my back and I had what I sometimes have is this period of uh, apnea, sleep apnea. And I woke up and I couldn't get my breath. And I couldn't, it, the, the, the circumstances of the heat and the humidity were such that I didn't feel like I could breathe. And I really, I didn't know whether I would survive. I mean, even though you can, you're bringing the breath in, you can't catch your breath. And it's a, it's a feeling of kind of panic. And I ran outside just to get air. And I had to stay out there a long time until finally you go, 
and you can catch your breath. And then I walked back and I laid down and then I started to be unable to catch my breath while I was wide awake. And I, you know, so what, what I did, it was very interesting. I just let fear have its, I just ran with it. I it wanted to go to the door and breathe, I went to the door and breathe. It wanted to stay up and stay up, I stayed up. If it, if it wanted to like that, I, I did all of that. I just went with the flow of the thing. And I was just watching it take me there and it was taking me there. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And there was, a, there was a part of me. It was only 1%, I confess. I said, this isn't true. I mean, it was true at the level it was doing, but it, was, there was a, it wasn't, like what? I was alive, I was breathing, and I could get, you know, there was lots of air. It just didn't feel right. And yet somehow the mind was creating a, a, its own horror story. And I was, and I didn't, feel like I had to sit stoically against the energy of it. I just went. I just let it flow. And it was like, you know, the wind was whistling and, the, and there it was. I said, boy, this is powerful stuff. But you know what? It's not true. And so um, the courage, the 1% courage, You know, this isn't true. Now, am I going to pretend the rest of my life that this boundary can't be crossed? Or is is it just come what may here? And as soon as that commitment is made, the fear is not there anymore. Because it cannot withstand that commitment. That solidity of form. Bring the devil on. And that, where does that come from? That doesn't come from me because I'm not courageous. I'm a coward. I'm not, I'll run with the fear. It comes from something that has been forgotten. But you know it. We all know it. We know it. But we have forgotten it. And we can call it up. We can call it forth from from ourselves. Yes, I know some of your lives have been brutal, some abusive. Your histories have been terrible. But you know what? They're no longer true. And you know that. And that is our salvation for each of the openings. For all of the openings have only been closed in imagination. The opening of the mind Now we're on to thought. And I can then understand that the story to which thought entwines emotionally around the bondage of my abuse 
I can begin to see that that, if thought isn't true, what about the story and the convincing argument I've given myself about how terrible I am all these years? How much truth can that hold? And if that can't sustain truth, what about the final trump card of my own existence? my need to be the small me. And so all we give up is an idea. The only thing separating ourselves from this full awakening is an idea. And that is always the limitation. So where are we going to go? What are we going to do to have a better idea? To get over that idea. Where are we going to go for the teaching that needs to get us over an idea that we're creating? When are we going to stand up? I'm tired of pretending. For that's what we're looking for here. That's what we're building. And where does it come from? Well, where does that thing that I almost said, I almost remembered, but I can't, I lost it. Where, uh, oh, well. Uh, there it is. I've come out of the idea. May we all come out of the idea. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.